as you find your way to your seats, Ryan wanted me to remind everybody that uh, starting this Friday, the, uh, we're going to have what's called a family movie night that we are offering to everybody who would want to make the trip to Guymon to the drive-in theater. Um, we're going to meet here at the church at 7, and uh, those of you who want to go, you can't bring food. They want you to order from them over there, but they do have a playground for the kids. Uh, the problem, one of the biggest problems is they have not yet announced what the movie is, but Ryan will be posting that on our Facebook page this week. So if you'd like to go to that, it's a great opportunity just to get out of the house. And Man, can't beat a drive-in. You don't have them around very much anymore, but that, you know, Brenda and I would go to the drive-in when we were young and raising kids and just throw the kids in the back seat and they'd go to sleep and we'd watch the movie. Love those days. Miss them. Glad you're here this morning. It's good to have our daughter Tiffany, our baby, with us this morning. Three grandkids, always good to have them. Uh... I said it when Tiffany wasn't here, so I better say it when she is here. The best part about having them is when you see their taillights leaving. But Tiffany, that doesn't apply to you. <laughs> we are in part three of our sermon series this morning. Sermon series, Christ is Risen, Now What? And by the way, uh, let me just say to you that when you come to church on Sunday morning and you see some of your friends that are normally here and they aren't here, Give them a call this week. Just tell them you missed them. You'd be amazed how many times I will talk to somebody or see somebody that was, has been absent for a few weeks and I'll talk to them and the next Sunday they show up. How much more would it mean coming from you? So just look around, see who's not here that should be here and uh, let them know that they are missed. Next week is Mother's Day. Great opportunity for us to honor our mothers. And uh, it's always a special day. If you'll go with me in your Bibles or on your smart app on your phone to Matthew chapter number 16. I will be there in just a little bit. But we are talking about this theme of what do we do now? This must have been a question that was on the minds of Jesus' disciples as they returned to the city of Jerusalem following Jesus' ascension back into heaven. It's like, okay, now, what do we do? And I'm guessing that it's not just those disciples, but many of us wonder what more is necessary, what more is needed uh, I mean, Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, we, we believe that he's going to come back and get us someday. So we've given our heart to him in saving faith. We're saved. Now what more is needed? Well, Jesus has a lot more for us. There's a lot of lost people out there that need to hear what Jesus has done in your life and mine. The tomb is empty the angels have announced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we have the opportunity to express our belief by not only exercising faith, saving faith in that work, but sharing that work with the world that needs to hear it. Amen? So what must we do between now and when we go to heaven? That's what this whole thought process is about. 
You see, for Jesus' disciples, before Jesus had gone to the cross and died, they had some preconceived notions about this whole Jesus thing and what Jesus was going to do. Now, keep in mind, they did not understand what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, I will be... I will go to Jerusalem and there I will be handed over to evil men and they will crucify me. They didn't understand that. They, had, they, they were so clouded by what they thought and by what they wanted Jesus to do. What was that? Well, they were hoping that he would revolt against the Roman occupation. That he would establish his own kingdom. And then he's crucified. And they knew that their desires were not going to happen in the way that they wanted to see them happen. So they're asking themselves, okay, what's plan B? Is there a plan B? And if so, what does it entail? Well, a few days after Jesus ascended to heaven... It seems that all that remained of the many in the multitudes who had followed Jesus for three and a half years of his earthly ministry were now down to 120. Think about that. I mean, we, we read during the, in the Gospels that on one occasion Jesus fed 5,000. On another occasion he fed 4,000. And now Jesus has been crucified. He's supposedly in the minds of a lot of people, been risen from the dead, been raised from the dead, excuse me. And now the disciples have watched him ascend into heaven. <laughs> I thought that was Jesus calling me there for a moment. <clears throat> Jesus has risen from the dead, and it appears that there were 120 disciples who were waiting for what was to come next. They hoped that there was more. But for many in that number, even that 120, the show was over and it was time to go home and get back to work. Get back to their normal lives, whatever that might have been. But those 120 were instructed by Jesus to go back to the city of Jerusalem and there wait Wait for what comes next. That's what Jesus told them to do in Acts chapter 1, verse number 4. Well, these 120 disciples, I'm guessing that many of them, if, if you would have asked, they would have said, you know, we're never going to be the way we were before just because of Jesus. We can never forget what Jesus has done in our lives. We can never just go back to life as it was before we knew him. But what did that mean? He told them to wait. So that's what they're doing. They are waiting. But they didn't know what they were waiting for. <laughs> it's nearly the time of the Jewish celebration known as the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50. And the reason it was called that is because it took place 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits, which is what we now celebrate as Easter Sunday. And this Feast of Pentecost, 
or 50 days, celebrated the completion of the harvest of barley or perhaps even other crops. And we find these 120 disciples waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus had directed them to do, waiting for the promise of the Father. Waiting. No idea what they're waiting on. No no idea what it's going to look like. But Jesus had promised them in one of his post-resurrection appearances in Jerusalem to wait until... As Luke said in Luke chapter 24, verse number 49, wait until they were endued with power from on high. Wait, uh, your translation that you, uh, I said that from memory, uh, they were, were to wait until they were clothed with power from on high. Wait until the promise of the Father. Wait for the power. Well, the question then becomes, what promise and what power? You'll remember that before Jesus was crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with those disciples. And he prayed for them and he said, I will pray, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, one who will be with you forever. That's John chapter 14, verse number 16. Then down in verse number 26, it says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send Him in my name, and He will teach you all things, and He will remind you of everything that I have told you. You go a little bit further down. uh, To John chapter 16, verse number 8, Jesus said, When He comes, He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So here they are waiting. What do you suppose was in their minds as they waited for something to happen? I'm guessing they were waiting for Jesus to come back. (laughs) I mean, he just ascended into heaven. So they're saying, okay, maybe he meant wait for him to come back. Surely he'll come back. While they waited, the city of Jerusalem... They'd been there for 10 days waiting. The sun comes up on Pentecost Sunday. And you have to remember that for these Jewish people, they were still operating under the system of the law. So there was no practical reason for them to be gathered together on Sunday, the first day of the week. Their custom was to gather together for their Sabbath which would have been our Saturday. So there's no practical reason for them to be together. No no reason to assemble on Sunday. Pentecost was an occasion of offering at the temple, but for this particular feast, that was done as individuals, and only men could do it. Women couldn't move into the temple past the court of the women. And and so it, it wasn't a big deal for them to gather in the temple On Pentecost Sunday, the Jewish men were to go. Jerusalem would have been crowded on that occasion. But they weren't called to assemble. And yet, we find the 120, still followers of Jesus, gathered together in one place. In the upper room on the first day of the week. And I I really think that 
the biggest reason why they were all together on Sunday was because ever since Jesus had been crucified, they kind of hung out together because they were a little bit afraid, afraid of, of what might happen to them. Especially with them saying, this Jesus whom you crucified has been risen from the dead. And you have the Jewish religious body trying to disprove that fact. They're huddled together out of fear. But at the same time, they're waiting. What they didn't know, but what you and I now know, according to the book of Acts, is that a new age was about to erupt on the world stage that would change forever the relationship between God and man. It was fitting that the first fruits of the gospel harvest was going to occur on this day of Pentecost. Little did these 120 believers gather together in the upper room realize it, but by the end of that day, their church, their number, was going to increase by 3,000 souls. How many of you would like to be a part of that kind of revival? All of a sudden, Trinity Faith wouldn't have room for 3,120 people. <laughs> What was going to happen in their waiting was something that would change the world forever. Little did they know that not just on that day, but in the days to come, that Jesus was going to add to their number daily, such as should be saved. So this just wasn't a one-time occurrence. This was going to be an ongoing process of Jesus' church getting bigger and bigger and bigger Acts 2.47 says, Every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. We're talking about the early church. Now I want us, since you are in Matthew chapter number 16, to go back to where Jesus first introduced the idea of a church. It's found in that 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I want to begin reading with verse number 17. Now let me give you some context before I do that. Actually, let's just go back to verse 13 and read it as it's written. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, now here's where I want you to really listen closely. Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders 
to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Jesus is telling us in this passage some things about his church. Now I'm assuming that you understand that the early church that began on the day of Pentecost, of which Peter, as Jesus told him, was the rock upon which his church was built, those of us who believe in Jesus today are part of that church. 2,000 years down the road, we are some of the ones who have been added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And so Jesus here in Matthew 16 is telling us some things about his church. First of all, that Jesus' church is built upon a rock. Now what is the rock? Well, contrary to what some of you may be thinking right now, understand this first. In Scripture... Jesus is the rock in a way that no one else is. I mean, I, go, look, look with me if you're following along on the Bible app. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse number 32. Samuel says, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. The psalmist says exactly the same thing in Psalm 1831. There are plenty of ideas of who or what the rock is upon which Jesus built his church. Some would point to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and 20 where the apostle Paul writes these words. So then you are no longer foreigners, strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The same Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 11, no one can lay any other foundation other than what has been laid, Jesus Christ. So understand that in Scripture, Jesus is the rock. But here in Matthew 16, I don't believe that Jesus is talking at this particular time about the foundation of the church that Paul would later refer to as the apostles and prophets or any of those prior figurative references that I gave you from 2 Samuel and Psalms and Ephesians. Look closely. There is an interpretation that fits better than any of those things, and it's likely the one that you've already thought of that you've heard before. Jesus was talking to Peter. He's talking to Peter. There, folks, let me, let me just give you a tidbit here. When you study Scripture, two of the most important things that you can do in studying Scripture is to take notice of one, who is speaking, and two, who is being spoken to. You'll notice that when I read the scripture reference from Matthew chapter number 16, I emphasized the word Jesus said to Peter. He's talking to Peter. Jesus wouldn't have said the things that he said in Matthew 16 about himself. And prefaced it with, you are Peter. I believe the rock that Jesus is speaking of here was Peter's faith in who Jesus is. We tend to run away from that idea because we don't, we don't want to be associated with its misuse. That is the notion that Peter and his lineal descendants are the head of the church here on earth. We want to shy away from that. But nevertheless, Jesus was talking to Peter and here's why I believe it. Peter was the first to comprehend 
and to verbalize this truth that makes men free. He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter made that comment as Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. My Father which is in heaven revealed that to you. So it took faith for Peter to believe what had been revealed to him. Peter stepped out. (laughs) He stepped out on faith and he said, you are the Messiah. Can you imagine what a statement that was? These these people in Israel, they've been waiting on a Messiah for over 4,000 years. They've been taught that one day Messiah will come. And here Peter says, you, Jesus, are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. What a statement of faith. Peter saw truth that no one before him had seen. That Jesus was the Christ. The Son of the living God. That made Peter, now listen carefully, that made Peter the first stone in a building that would eventually have many stones laid upon that stone. And as Peter identifies in his own letter, all of them would be living stones. It's what Jesus calls the truth that will make you free. It's impossible to overemphasize that truth, for it's the central truth of the Bible. Peter had learned this not from some man, not from some woman. He learned it from God. And I believe that Peter's faith, the first of its kind, was the rock upon which Jesus would begin to build his church. There eventually, of course, would be a second person to believe that same essential truth. And then a third, and then a fourth, and many more. Until the whole building of the church was complete, and the church was built. And by the way, Jesus is still building his church today. Stones are still being added to that first stone. Now, Peter used the illustration in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. He says, you yourselves are living stones that are being built into a spiritual house with Jesus himself, the stone which the builders rejected as the chief cornerstone. Okay, so what we're acknowledging here, long story short, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. There's no denying that. But Jesus is going to build his church through living stones of which Peter was the first as a result of his confession of faith. Second thing that Jesus says about his church. The church is his, and here's the Greek word for you, ekklesia. Ekklesia, that is the called out ones. So what did Jesus mean by building a church from his called out ones? Well, the Apostle Peter answers that for us again in 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 9. He's talking about the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his Glorious light. Have you been called out of the darkness? You're part of the ecclesia. 
You've been called out. Jesus is saying, I will build my church, my ecclesia, those whom I have called out of the darkness of sin into my glorious light of the good news. What's the good news? Well, here it is. I have overcome sin, hell, and the grave by dying on the cross and rising three days later from the dead. Hold on, it's going to get better. Here's the application that we need to understand. Jesus either has called you out of darkness or is still calling you out of darkness. And that goes for everybody in the world today. He's either called them out of darkness or he is still calling them out of darkness. Now, will all of them respond? Obviously not. But he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus wants everyone to experience the freedom of knowing the truth and having the truth set men and women free. He wants us to walk in the freedom that we've been called into. And that brings me to the third thing that Jesus said concerning his church. He said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, the gates of a fortified city back in Jesus' day, they were there for defense. They weren't just a gate like you'd have in your backyard. They were a gate attached to a huge, thick wall that surrounded most of the cities. Now, the gates of a city don't go forth and attack an enemy, right? But in Jesus' day, this gate configuration in fortified cities, it didn't just provide an entrance for people to come into or people in the city to go out of. A gate was known as a door. And it included, in these thick walls, it would have rooms for conferring with visiting dignitaries to the city. Uh, it would have, it would have uh, places uh, for potential enemies to be held prisoner. And they would also have uh, a place in these walls in which the gates were attached, places where legal cases were heard and judgments were rendered regarding those cases. But a gate is also a door, and a gate can allow or deny access, right? It's much like the doors to this building. When it's locked... It denies access. It forms a barrier from anyone for anyone being able to just walk right in. Now hold that thought. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let me tell you something about the word Hades. Hades is a transliteration of a Greek word. And although Hades is often associated with the word that we know as hell... That's not what Hades is. Don't want to don't go into it because I don't have the time, but, but hell has sections, if you will. Different sections that accomplish different things. Hades is not a place of eternal torment that awaits the wicked. Hades means the grave. The state of being dead. And it was that particular section of hell into which Jesus went during his time in the grave and took the keys of death, 
hell and the grave and led those who were in captivity in Hades to their freedom. Now, who were they? Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Daniel. I can go on. But you get the idea. Who are these guys? They are guys that died prior to Jesus going to the cross, prior to Jesus rising from the dead. You know why they were there? Because they were dead. They were dead. They were in this place being held captive by their deaths. But Jesus, during the time that he was in the grave, God began to raise him to life, and he went down to this portion of hell called Hades and took the keys, and he unlocked the door. And all of those that believed in God prior to Calvary were set free because death no longer could hold them in its grip. Why? Because Jesus overcame death. So when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church, what he's saying is the forces, the gates of Hades, the gates of the grave, whatever you want to call it, will not prevail against my church. Now if that seems a little odd, let me explain it a little bit further. We don't normally think of gates as a marching against or prevailing against uh, type of of force or, or overcoming an enemy. But Jesus is saying that the gates of the grave will not serve as a containment barrier for those who are a part of my church. Oh, that's us. That's us. Death is not our final destination. Oh, I know Ben Franklin said there's only two things certain in life, death and taxes. But I can, I can add one to Ben's list. Resurrection. Death is not our final destination. Jesus overcame death. Since Adam and Eve, there had been no escape from the grave. And Satan's stronghold was death. The wages of sin is death, Right? That was Satan's ultimate purpose, to destroy us, to kill us, to kill our soul, and banish us to hell. His goal was that we would never have an escape from the grave. Jesus said, even the gates of Hades, that serves as a barrier of containment for those who have died, who were believers in God, will not prevail against my church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It gets better. Not only did Jesus hold the key to the grave, but if he could overcome death, those who believe in him can also overcome it. Jesus won that key when he rose from the dead. And as a result, are you ready for this? Satan was defeated. 
His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. His efforts were defeated when Jesus walked out of that grave alive. He was defeated and death no longer became a threat. The barrier, the closed door of the prison of death cannot prevail against the ecclesia whom Jesus has called out of darkness into his glorious light. It gets better. Lastly, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus mean that he was giving the keys to all the apostles and to every believer? Well, again, remember what I said about studying Scripture? Look who is speaking and who is being spoken to. Jesus still is speaking to Peter about his church in response to Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I have a hard time thinking that Jesus would saying that, was saying that he would give the keys to everyone, to all the apostles, to everyone that would ever become a part of the church, although, in essence, we do have the keys. But we have the keys because of what Peter did with the keys that were given to him. Now this about knocked my socks off when I was sitting in my office the other day because it had never, it had never come to me like it did. I had all of this written and then I looked back and said, what did you just write? Because it had never occurred to me in the way that I'm getting ready to share with you. He said, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? What kingdom is he talking about? The church is the present day manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth. Jesus was talking about that kingdom when he spoke to Pontius Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It was like nothing the world had ever known and cannot rightly be thought of in the way that we think of earthly things. Jesus spoke often of the kingdom. You go back to his parables where Jesus explained in detail what the kingdom of God would look like. Why did he use those parables? Well, he tells his disciples who questioned him in Matthew chapter 13. Then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, because... The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but to them it has not been given. Them, speaking of the crowds, which clamored to hear his teaching. So Jesus is saying to Peter, or, or someone, someone one day is going to be given the keys to the kingdom of the called out church. That day came for Peter in Matthew 16. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give them to you. And the reason I'm giving, to you, giving them to you is because you have professed that I am the Messiah. I'm giving them to you because you are the first one to proclaim faith in me for who I am. So that brings me to the question, what were the keys for? Well, here's what God brought to my plate about this. And this, this may be new and revolutionary to you, but I, I'm going to run with it, Okay. What were the keys for? I believe that they were given to Peter to be used twice. 
Now, before you say, pastor's lost it, he's, he's completely lost it. I want you to hear me out on this. The keys were to be used by Peter twice. The first time that they were to be used was in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, after the Holy Spirit came and empowered those 120 waiting in the upper room, Peter went out and preached a sermon. And after that sermon was concluded and Peter gave his invitation, 3,000 souls repented of their sin and became part of the church. Who were they? They were Jewish people gathered in the city of Jerusalem. So Peter unlocked the church, the ecclesia, by calling out from among the darkness Jewish people who had never believed in Messiah. The door was now open. The Jewish people began to come and day after day God added to the church daily such as should be saved. And ultimately, many others soon followed through that door. But then he used them a second time. You'll find it in Acts chapter number 10. You'll remember this story, perhaps. If not, I'll let you read it on your own. Acts chapter number 10. Peter had been preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. So he thought that the good news of Jesus must be for the Jewish people, right? So Peter was so headstrong in what he believed about it being just for the Jews that God had to show him a vision in a dream. You remember what that vision was? Peter was called down to the house of a man whose name was Cornelius. And while he was at that house, he didn't know what he was there for because Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so... Peter was so headstrong, he didn't want to share the good news with Cornelius yet, so he goes upstairs, and while he's upstairs sleeping, God gives him a dream. And God lets down in a sheet everything that no Jewish person would ever eat. And he says to Peter, eat it. And Peter says, no. So God lets down the sheet in his dream again and says, eat it. And Peter says, no Jew would ever eat these things. Third time, God lets down the sheet. And Peter, being a student by now and having gone through Bible college, finally gets it. If God says something three times, he means it. And all of a sudden dawns on him, oh, you brought me here to preach the good news to Cornelius and his household. And they're not Jewish. And Jesus, somewhere in the dream, says, Peter, remember, I gave you the keys. <laughs> and Peter, for the second time, takes the keys that Jesus had given him and opens the door 
to every non-Jewish Gentile believer that would ever live. And God confirms it by baptizing those Gentile believers in the same Holy Spirit that baptized the 120 in the upper room. And since that day, God has added to His church those who would be saved. Thanks be to God, some of us who are sitting here today. Because he used the keys not just to open the church door to Jewish believers, but to Gentiles. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus did not mean in giving the keys to the kingdom to Peter that he was putting the power to absolve sins in the hands of Peter or in the hands of Peter's successors, or Peter's chosen assistants. What am I saying? Friends, here's what I'm saying. If I am right, if I am correct in that statement, the entire papal system, the pope, the bishops, the cardinals, the formal priesthood collapses in ruins because it's only Jesus that can forgive sins. Peter shared the good news. The good news set them free, not Peter. And that's why we have the amazing blessing of not having to go through a priest or a pastor. We can come directly into the throne room of God and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Punch our ticket to eternity in heaven with Him forever. Neither was Jesus saying, okay, Peter, here's what, something else you can do with the keys. I'm going to have you stand at the pearly gates with the keys in hand and let you determine who should get into heaven and who shouldn't. That's not what he was telling him. We have this misconstrued information. We've heard jokes made about it, about St. Peter when he encounters somebody who comes to the pearly gates. Let me tell you what, friends. The only ticket that's necessary to go through those pearly gates to the other side is faith in Jesus Christ. The same faith that Peter confessed in Matthew chapter number 16. And the blood covering your sins, that punches your ticket. Peter loosed the flood of redeemed souls. What did Jesus go on to say? He said, Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What did he mean by that? Well, remember the 3,000 that were baptized on this day? The day of Pentecost? They were the first members of the church, but they were just the beginning. They were to be followed by many others, and the firstborn of whom the Hebrew letter speaks are not those only among those Jews who first received the gospel, but the entire elect of God. Remember what John said about Jesus? He said he came to his own, the Jewish people, but they received him not. So what happened when they weren't, didn't receive him? He opened the door to whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. That's us. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Hallelujah. The citizens of the kingdom, the church, the ecclesia, we have the highest privilege, we have the highest honor that are accorded to human beings, and, and, and we will enjoy the same inheritance because 
Paul, I love this. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse number 17, you and I, it's written down in a will, friends. You and I are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And everything that's been given to the Son by the Father is ours for the taking. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, even when they didn't understand it, greater things than these which I do, you shall do because I go to the Father. Hallelujah. There's probably some Baptist churches that would get excited about that somewhere. Peter loosed the flood of redeemed souls, Jewish and Gentile, into the kingdom and ultimately into heaven. In both of these events of Peter's use of the keys, first to the Jewish church and then to the Gentile church, Peter was breaking new ground. And here's how it applies to us today, church, and I'm working toward a close. Here's how it applies to us. What the church should be, among many other things, is a gathering of believers who are focused on breaking new ground. What does that mean? That means going into places where the gospel has never been taken, where the gospel has never been heard, and preaching that gospel to those people, even though they may not be a part of us, they may not have grown up on the same side of the tracks of us, they are still souls for whom Jesus died. And Jesus wants us, under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to take the gospel and break new ground wherever we find the opportunity. The church is what Jesus created. It's what he established as the means by which lost people can be reconciled to God. You know, I've heard people say, well, I, I have family, I have friends, I can't get them saved because they won't come to church. <laughs> what? You're the church. They don't have to go to a building. They don't have to go to a Methodist church or an Assembly of God church or a non-denominational church. You are the church. And the word that you have to share with them is universal. Jesus is good news. He will lead those in darkness into His glorious light. The church, it's described places as a bride. It's described in other places as a body. It's a also described as a city or a kingdom. All of those different descriptions are talking about the same thing. If we depart from those biblical descriptions in an incompatible way, we lose sight of the church that Jesus wants to see built. He wants the church to include everyone. Every race, every color, every tribe, Every tongue, every woman, every man, every boy, every girl. He wants to see brought into his kingdom and called out as his ecclesia. I love it, friends, when I go to a church in Wichita or Garden City or Los Angeles. Someday, hopefully, even places in India. And know that as a member of the church, wherever I encounter a building that calls itself a church, I'm a part of it. 
This isn't their church, and mine's back in liberal Kansas. The church is a body of believers who by faith profess that Jesus Christ is our Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has triumphed over death, who has triumphed over hell, who has triumphed over the grave, and who is coming again to take us to live with Him forever. That's the church. So what does all this mean in light of now what? It means that just as Peter and the rest of Jesus' 120 followers were instructed to wait, we too are being called to wait. Wait on what? Well, what they were waiting on was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that would launch the church. Not just in Jerusalem, but eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth. We today are being called to wait in the presence of God for the empowerment of that same Holy Spirit to dynamically affect the community in which Jesus has placed his local body, the church. To dynamically affect our community, our city, our nation. And as part of the waiting process, there has to be an expectation, friends. There has to be an expectation in our waiting that God will deliver on what He has promised to all believers. Power from on high. Worship team, would you come please? How about that? 12 o'clock on the nose. As they're coming, the question for you as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Are you willing to wait on that empowerment? Are you willing to wait... Friends, this is not about talking about any of the gifts of the Spirit. Don't go there yet. This is waiting to be baptized, to be so full of Jesus that His presence and His power literally ooze out of your being to everyone that you come in contact with. In other words, when people see you, they see something that is so radically different from the darkness that they've been walking in. That they decide they want what you have. And at that moment, perhaps even unbeknownst to you, you've planted a seed that the Holy Spirit wants to take and draw that person to Jesus because Jesus is why you appear different and Jesus is what will make them not like you necessarily because you're still trying to be like Jesus but he will draw them and bring them into the same process of making them more and more like Jesus power Power to be effective. Power to walk and live in the abundance that Jesus Christ has called each and every one of us into. Power to walk in the freedom that we've been called into. 
power to be effective of sharing the good news calling people out of darkness into his glorious light Holy Spirit I know that you're here today and I know God that through your Holy Spirit you have drawn those who are in this room right now to this place for a specific purpose you called called them here to equip them to do works of ministry but in order for them to do that was works of ministry in an effective way they need the power that comes from your Holy Spirit Holy Spirit have your way in this invitation this morning I asked this question last Sunday and I had 10 to 12 responses And I've been praying for those 10 to 12 responses throughout this week that God would do what their upraised hand asked Him to do and that is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Today I'm going to ask the same question again. It's a different crowd. How many of you want to be baptized in the Spirit? How many of you are willing to wait until the Holy Spirit comes? We're not talking... We're not talking about jumping pews and swinging from chandeliers. We're not talking about evidence. We're talking about empowerment. If you read the scriptures closely, you'll understand that the reason there was evidence when it came to those 120 is because the the Holy Spirit wanted to speak in languages that men there in the city could understand. We'll get to all of that later. What I'm talking about is being baptized in the Spirit. We're not talking about the gifts of the Spirit. You want to walk in the fullness and the power and the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit, just raise your hand today. Anyone, anywhere? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that hand. Another, 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 another. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, these are hands of people who are willing to take a stand for you. And they can move forth in the power that's been promised to them as they wait on your Holy Spirit.